0: because we affirm justice and compassion in human relations, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, and respect for the interdependent web of existence, and because we share the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, and whereas waste and pollution, overconsumption by the world's affluent few, and the pressures caused by the poverty and burgeoning populations are inflicting harsh and often irreversible damage on the environment and have endangered the future, we wish for both humanity and the rest of nature. Whereas the poor, the powerless, the landless, and the disinherited are often compelled to carry the major burdens of waste and pollution without representation in planning and decision-making processes. Whereas the concept of environmental justice links the principles of liberal religion with the values of ecological awareness and racial and class justice. Therefore, be it resolved that the Unitarian Universalist Association shall act and urge its affiliates, member societies, and individual Unitarian Universalists to promote programs for social, economic, and political empowerment so that all people may join together in one struggle for peace, justice, and sustainable development. Be it further resolved that the Unitarian Universalist Association shall act and encourage its affiliates, member societies, and individual Unitarian Universalists to bear witness to the need for environmental justice by reducing their consumption of the Earth's resources, generating as little waste as possible, recycling, and making a commitment as producers, investors, and consumers to living in an ecologically balanced and responsible manner.
1: I will admit that as fossil fuels go, I'm a big fan of natural gas. Any serious chef knows that a gas stove is infinitely preferable to an electric one, and I do admit that I cook on one. I heat my home with it, too. Two years ago, Eric and I replaced our 35-year-old, frightfully inefficient oil-burning boiler with a 99.5% efficiency gas model. We are comfortable all year round knowing that our carbon footprint was dramatically decreased by this change. Given how cleanly and efficiently it burns compared to home heating oil for heat or coal for electricity, it is a better choice than the fuels that are predominantly used in our homes and our power plants. It turns out that natural gas is in plentiful supply in the United States, too. And the supplies that have already been tapped make it significantly cheaper than oil to boot. Unfortunately, most of our nation's supply of natural gas exists in deep deposits of shale, a type of rock. And gas stuck in brittle shale is notoriously difficult to get out. One of the most gas-rich deposits in the world runs pretty close to here, under the Catskill Mountains and through central New York, most of Pennsylvania and West Virginia, and the Appalachian parts of Ohio, Maryland, and Virginia. It's called the Marcellus Shale, and New York State's Department of Environmental Conservation cites estimates that it holds within it almost 500 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, enough to supply New York with gas for 500 years at our current rate of use. Because this gas is so hard to get to, Gas companies have developed a controversial method of natural gas mining called horizontal hydraulic fracturing, also known as hydrofracturing or just plain fracking, and New York is one of the many states embroiled in a debate over it. Many of you might know about this debate already. Some of you are probably part of it in your towns and with your state representatives. Just the mention of a service on fracking inspired Francoise to share with me her file of research. That's this thick, I have it for you in my office, Francois. She made me swear that I'd give it back. (laughs) If you're not familiar with fracking, let me explain it briefly. Wells are drilled down into the bedrock shale deposits in some place a mile or more below the surface of the earth. The wells then turn horizontal and run through the shale. Under high pressure, water, sand, and chemicals are pumped into the wells, fracturing the rock and releasing natural gas from the cracks. The gas is then collected at the surface of the well and stored in tanks and transported where it's needed by trucks and pipelines. So you might ask, what's the problem? There are several. First, true to its name, hydrofracturing requires water, millions and millions of gallons of water. One horizontal well uses a minimum of 1.5 million gallons of water during drilling alone, enough for 4,000 people to shower daily for more than two weeks. Most wells use more like 9 million gallons of water. That's just one well. Most drilling companies aim to drill 16 per square mile. All of that water is diverted from other industrial, agricultural, and residential usage. Now, last summer, amidst the deluge and the hurricanes and the floods, that might not have seemed so bad. But try to imagine what that might do to us in a drought. Now, the things that are mixed into that water are the next problem. By design, the mixture of chemicals added to fracking fluid includes friction reducers, antimicrobial chemicals, anti-corrosive chemicals, radioactive tracer molecules to keep track of where the fluid is going, and gels to keep the sand up in the cracks. As you might imagine, most of those chemicals, even the least hazardous ones of each type, are not exactly good for you. Many of them are carcinogens. Some of them are neurotoxins. Not a single one of them is actually good for the The fluid itself either stays underground, where it can make its way through those cracks into underground aquifers that supply many people with drinking water, or it can be pumped out, where it forms waste pools of hazardous material that have to be treated with care. And what that fluid unleashes is yet another problem. Along with natural gas, shale deposits contain minerals like pyrite, that break down when exposed to air and water to form sulfuric acid, which can further break down the rock to release other minerals, minerals like arsenic and chromium, wonderful, beautiful heavy metals that should be left in the earth because they are toxic to humans and other life forms. These chemicals, both the natural ones and the ones pumped into the wells, can easily make their ways not only into underground water, but surface water as well. Streams and lakes and rivers. And the most gas-rich parts of the Marcellus Shale are in the Delaware Water Rivershed, including the waterways that form the reservoirs that supply New York City's water. All told, almost 16 million people in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware rely on the Delaware River Basin for our drinking water. Naturally occurring radioactive materials like radon gas are also stored in shale and are easily released at the surface of fracking wells. Radon released into the air is a carcinogen, enough so that homes built in high radon areas routinely have expensive pump systems installed in their basements. Now all of this is enough to make me ask, to borrow a fictional expletive from the television show Battlestar Galactica, What the frack? But those are just the scientific problems with it. And this, as you're well aware, is not a geology class. There are theological problems with fracking as well. And they include our relationship with the earth, the exploitation of the most vulnerable in our society, and an uneasy relationship between profit and truth. Theological problems that I believe that we as Unitarian Universalists are called to explore in determining what our positions are on this, theological problems that Unitarian Universalists have been exploring for many years. It's not an accident that all three of the pieces of music in our worship this morning were written by Unitarian Universalists who were also environmental activists. It's not an accident that the statement that John read was passed by the UUA General Assembly Assembly way back in 1994. So first, I'd like to explore our relationship with the earth and its creatures. Unitarian Universalism embraces a theology of relationship. We understand it's written in our very principles that we exist as part of an interdependent web of being. I believe that how we get our energy must take into account both the short and long-term effects of that energy On our planet, natural gas might be efficient, but it is still a carbon based, non renewable energy source. In the best case scenario, we might get enough gas out of the Marcellus Shale for the next hundred years, but at what cost? And in a hundred years, then what? What do we get from poisoning our streams? What do we get from injecting toxic chemicals at high pressure into bedrock? Already, there are signs that our Earth cannot handle this without serious repercussions. Just this week, scientists at the U.S. Geological Survey released findings about earthquakes in the Midwest. According to yesterday's Financial Times, not known for its liberal anti-corporate bias, the Financial Times writes, the use of underground wells to dispose of wastewater produced by fracking is almost certainly behind the surge in earthquakes in the central U.S., in recent years. So before we inject millions of gallons of toxic sludge into our earth at high pressure to make fissures in the rock in order to satisfy our energy needs, it would do us well to think about our relationship with the planet and its creatures. A true universalist theology also calls on us to understand the inherent equality of all humanity, and I believe it does us well to also examine in our thirst for energy how we exploit the most vulnerable in our society. Those of us with privilege and power are asked to pay attention to how our society does and does not work for those around who, without privilege and power. We learn from spiritual teachers throughout history the lesson attributed to Jesus in the Christian scripture of Matthew, where it is written, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. In this case, the least of these brothers and sisters of ours are people without power, poor rural people in the United States. For local communities, the best argument in favor of fracking is money. Gas companies lease land for drilling and pay royalties to landowners. And those royalties are often more money than some of these poor farmers in rural areas where unemployment is high have ever seen. Drilling and pipeline companies promise jobs in rural areas for decades to come. Delaware County, New York, is one of the centers of the fracking controversy in New York State. It has an unemployment rate several percentage points higher than the nation as a whole. It's typical of the rural counties in central New York and Pennsylvania that struggle with this decision about fracking. And yet, if we dig just a little beneath the surface, we see yet another case of large and powerful companies taking advantage of those with little money and even less power. You see, very little of the money being made by these companies ends up In those local communities. The amount of royalties being paid is minuscule. And the costs to landowners to clean up once wells and pipelines are no longer in use often exceed the money they get paid. These are people who are too often dismissed as crazy mountain hicks when their tap water becomes flammable, as documented in the film Gasland, and companies who are eager to dismiss these people who are at the margins of our society already, say, oh, we didn't do that, and the rest of us buy it. Environmental justice asks us to connect our environmentalism with an understanding of systemic inequalities and injustices at work in our society already. We understand from an environmental justice analysis why polluting power plants and incinerators get cited more often in communities of color, regardless of their income level. We see mercury poisoning on Native American reservations and asthma rates in urban black populations in a new light. We also see the connection between environmental degradation and class. Poor people are regularly taken advantage of when it comes to the cleanliness of their water and air. Mountaintop coal removal in West Virginia, toxic waste dumps in rural North Carolina, coal ash from power plants in Tennessee, fracking in Pennsylvania and New York. These are just some of the most highly visible ways in which poor rural communities are taken advantage of, soiled by the rest of us, eager to light our stoves and heat our homes. The United Church of Christ was one of the very first faith movements to undertake a study of environmental justice and theology. Our brothers and sisters in this liberal Christian church are even credited with inventing the term environmental justice. They ground their seminal work in a theology of caring for God's creation. We too, as Unitarian Universalists, can find a theological way to ground what we do and how we care for the planet in a notion of environmental justice, in a theology of interdependence and the inherent worth and dignity of every person, no matter who they are, no matter how much money they have or what their background is. And so either way, before we tear up local communities in the name of profit, I think we would do well to think about the effects of our actions on the least of these, people whose interests are rarely represented in the halls of legislatures. We would do well to think about how we can and should structure our society so that the poor people in Delaware County, New York, and Appalachian, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia do not thirst for the money that is brought to them by these companies eager to exploit their land and their water. Maybe if we as a society took better care of the least of these, the money wouldn't be so great a lure. And that money leads us to the third theological problem I see in the fracking controversy, and that is the uneasy relationship between profit and truth. The final theological problem posed by fracking has to do with the ways in which modern American society treats the truth. When profit is at stake, truth becomes an inconvenient distraction for most corporations. Millions of dollars are spent each day discrediting scientific studies, documentary filmmakers, and environmental activists, all in the name of natural gas and petroleum profits. Public relations campaigns mounted by gas drilling and pipeline companies bring us supposedly neutral sounding organizations like Energy in Depth, which is actually a public relations subsidiary of the American Petroleum Institute, and Clean Growth Now, which is actually a New York organization funded largely by construction companies that would benefit from the contracts being awarded. My friend and colleague, the Reverend Clyde Grubbs, recently contributed the following theological thought for a report that he and I were writing as members of the Unitarian Universalist Association's Board of Trustees. He wrote, Unitarian Universalists have long been guided by the radical notion that the truth will make us free. And yet, when it comes to fracking, we know little of the truth. Corporations set free to seek profit at any cost have made sure of this. They have helped block laws that would have them disclose the exact chemicals they use in any particular well because they know that to do so would make it easy to blame the subsequent groundwater contamination on them down the road. They grease the way for state laws that override local zoning boards and town councils. Money. Money especially in our political system in this country today, has a funny way of obscuring the truth. And before we trust that either corporations or the politicians they have bought have our best interest at heart, we should insist on some truth-telling. There are a number of reasons that fracking concerns me. Some of those reasons are scientific concerns. Some of them are political concerns, but some of, them, some of them are theological concerns. Concerns based in the tenets in which I ground my faith as a Unitarian Universalism. And so, as our state and its residents prepare to make tough decisions on this issue, tough decisions about who gets money and who does not, who gets energy and who does not, what kinds of energy we use and what kinds of energy we do not, the ways in which we treat our earth, and the ways in which we leave it alone. Tough, tough decisions as we prepare to make those tough decisions. I invite each of you to explore this issue through the lens of your own theology. However it is that you believe something greater moves through you, however it is that you understand your connection to the world and its creatures and our human community, I invite you to do that reflection for yourself and then make up your own mind. May it be so.